And if you return uh, with me to Nehemiah uh, chapter 8 in your Bibles, it's page uh, 491, if you have one of the church Bibles. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. And I'll read uh, the whole of this chapter. Or from the very last verse of chapter 7. When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the teacher of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion Beside him on his right stood Mathaniah, Shema, Anaiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah. And on his left were Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadaniah, Zechariah, and Meshalam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, and Peleiah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the teacher of the law, Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered round Ezra the teacher of the law to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law which the Lord had commanded through Moses. 
that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and other leafy trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. This is God's word. And I've called this message, Bring Out the Book. Bring out the book, which is the phrase uh, that we read there uh, in verse 1, that the children of Israel called uh, for. They called uh, the leaders to bring out the book. But to begin with, I want you to imagine for a moment somebody uh, who is alive that you have always wanted to meet but have never been able to. Can you think of somebody that you've always wanted to meet, but have never as yet been able to? Perhaps it's a sports star or an actor. For some, it might even be a a certain Christian you'd love to speak to. If this person was going to come and speak to you or call you, What would you be like? How would you respond? What would you do if you knew that they were going to call you on your phone? Uh, Wouldn't you be ready in eager anticipation for that phone call? What would you do if you knew they were going to come to your house? Wouldn't you be excited that they were coming? Wouldn't you be really eager to hear what this person had to say or perhaps what answers they would give to the questions you might ask of them. Well, that is the kind of response, that of eager, excited anticipation, that the people in Nehemiah chapter 8 have to hearing from God as his word is opened. Now, I've said before, the book of Nehemiah is split into two distinct sections, The first section is about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. The the book began with the disgrace of God's people in having a city that was in ruins. And at the end of chapter 7, the wall is completed. The disgrace of a ruined city is gone. And the people are now enabled in security to worship their God. The second section of Nehemiah relates to that worship of God. If the first part was about the rebuilding of the walls, the second part is about the reviving of the people as they worship their God. 
And what we see here is a revival of a people that until the rebuilding of the wall had been in trouble and disgrace, we read in the first chapter. It was a depressing time to be part of the people of God. It seemed as nothing, though nothing much was happening. But here in chapter 8, we see a major change take place in the hearts of the people. And that a revival of God's people is the great need of the church today. A movement of God's, uh, among God's people where we see God at work and his glory on display. And in this section of Nehemiah, we see what a revival among God's people looks like. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, we see that it begins when people get serious about the word of God. They get serious about the word of God. In Nehemiah chapter 8, at the beginning, we read how Ezra comes out of obscurity and into prominence in this book. Ezra was a priest who was responsible for teaching God's word among God's people. And the events about him in the book of Ezra, which precedes Nehemiah, took place about 13 years before this time in Nehemiah chapter 8. And Ezra was a man well qualified to teach God's word to his people. In Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, we read this about him. Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Uh, Ezra was a man, if you like, that really took to heart what we heard this morning from the book of James. He listened to God's word and he obeyed God's word. He observed it. And then he went ahead and taught it to others. And what we see in chapter 8 of Nehemiah is a whole community of God's people, desperate, hungry, eager to hear what this man Ezra has to say when he opens up God's word. And what we see in this chapter are four lessons of what this revival amongst God's people looks like and what we need to see among us today. We see, first of all, a fresh hunger. We see, secondly, a right response. We see, thirdly, a joyful celebration. And then finally, an ongoing obedience. So first of all, we see a fresh hunger. A fresh hunger. Uh, in verse 1, we see that this, was, this fresh hunger was among all the people. Notice this in verse 1. Notice how all the people came together as one. All of them. In fact, one of the features of this chapter, if you were to read it again, you may notice, is that the phrase, all the people, or the people, occurs over and over again. I counted 14 times in 18 verses, including the phrase, all the families, in verse 13. An unusual aspect of this story is that all of God's people were hungry. Every single one of them, it seems. Uh, in any church, there are usually some people who are hungry for God's word. It wouldn't really be a church if there was nobody hungry. No one would show up, would they? But here, there appears to be no exceptions. Everybody is hungry to hear Ezra speak God's word. 
And to ensure that all of them could satisfy this hunger, they met in the square before the water gate. They didn't meet in the temple courts, probably because it was too small to fit them all in, or because there were certain parts of the temple that only men were allowed, and there was not just men who were hungry to hear. And they gather in this square, all of them, and they called out to Ezra this wonderful phrase. Notice it in verse 1. They told Ezra, they told him, bring out the book. Bring out the book. Now, one of the signs of a, of a teenager that they are growing is that one of the questions a parent is always asked on a daily basis, I think, is a variation of, what time is dinner? Or, what's for dinner? Now, that can be frustrating, perhaps, but it is a sign, is it not, that the child has a hunger and that they are growing. And you know that they're growing because they can't get enough of whatever food that you're feeding them. And that's a healthy thing, isn't it? A healthy thing to be hungry. And for God's people... They show a spiritual hunger, and they show that they are growing by a hunger for God's word. And rather than saying, what is for dinner, the cry is, bring out the book. Bring out the book. Specifically, they were calling here for the law of Moses, which referred to the first five books of the Bible from Genesis to Deuteronomy, which contain the commands that God has given his people for how they are to live as his people. And I would like to think that you expect the leaders of this church each week to bring out the book when we gather. And in fact, I would say if ever there was a time when someone was standing here and they weren't doing that, you would tell them, bring out the book. I don't want to hear all of your funny stories. I don't want to hear uh, an anecdote or an epilogue. Bring out the book. That is the cry of a hungry people. So all of the people gathered. Notice in verse 2, it was among all ages. So he brings out the book, but notice who is in the assembly. There are men and women. And notice this phrase, all who are able to understand, which really can only mean the children as well. Uh, biblical preaching is not 18 rated. It is for everyone. And I believe churches do go awry when children and young people are completely siphoned off and put into a separate place altogether with watered-down teaching to be expected when they turn 18 to show up in church and be able to listen to biblical preaching. No, preaching is for the whole family. Now, we try to apply this in our church by having Sunday school finish after primary school. But I would also encourage parents where they can to bring children to an evening service to engage them in biblical preaching. We apply this also in our youth and children's work by taking seriously God's word, by teaching it faithfully, 
but also taking seriously our children and young people and not fobbing them off by trying to be cool and teach things that are really of no relevance whatsoever. Now, of course, we must be relevant as we teach God's Word. Of course, we must be engaging. Of course, we must use illustrations and applications that apply to our children and young people. But we take seriously the Word of God and we bring out the book to all ages. I've seen far too many youth leaders, rather than bringing out the book, bringing out their own desire to be cool. And that's a sign of a bad youth leader. I would also challenge myself as a preacher to make sure that we work hard at communicating God's word from the pulpit in a way that all ages can understand. But a sign of God being at work in this way in a church is when all ages have a hunger for God's word. And thirdly in this point, notice how everyone was all ears in verse 3. So Ezra here, in verse 3, read aloud from daybreak till noon, which is six hours. Uh, Six hours, he was reading. Uh, And it says that all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Uh, The translation literally there is, at at the end, is all uh, the ears of all the people were toward the book of the law. So they were literally all ears. Now, I've always appreciated at our church how people have always uh, been keen to hear biblical preaching. I've never had anyone complain to me about how long a sermon is. Um, I've never preached for six hours, mind. But I, I do remember one pastor telling me one time how a member of his church did come to him with a graph Uh, plotting the length of all of his sermons and how he thought that they were increasing. Uh, Don't be that member, please. (laughs) I'm not advocating for six-hour sermons, but I am saying that when there is a hunger for God's Word, people are not looking at their watches. When there is a hunger for God's Word, there is not a worry about where we've got to be in a few hours' time. We're not bothered if the roast potatoes are a little bit overcooked. If there is a hunger for God's Word... We want to hear God's word. We are attentive to God's word. And literally, their ears were drawn to the word. They were straining, the images, they were straining to hear. And they probably were literally straining because there was loads of people and there would have been no microphones. But there they were in the square, eager and straining their ears to hear what Ezra had to say. In the history of Israel, it was sadly seldom that God's word was hungered for and read in this kind of way. And sadly, it's so often true, isn't it, that God's people today can be hungry for all sorts of things more than they are for hearing the word of God. Isn't this kind of hunger what should be normal in the church here in Pelsall? where all members eagerly come to church with an expectancy to hear God speak as we open up his word. So how can we develop this kind of hunger? Well, first of all, by showing up when God's word is going to be opened. Now, I guess I'm speaking to those who are already convinced of this because you are here at the evening service. 
Uh, but I did hear of uh, Sinclair Ferguson, who is the author of the Advent books that many of you have bought, saying that a church's health can be well gauged by the attendance at the evening service. But more than just turning up, when you come to church, have that attitude of expectation. Read the passage that we're going to preach on before you come. Pray for the preacher. Ask God to speak to you. Turn off the notifications on your phone just for the hour that we're here. Even the six hours we're here. Engage in the singing as we prepare our hearts to worship. Be straining to understand and to hear God's word. I've got a really good little uh, pamphlet that I'm happy to give to any of you who wants it uh, called Listen Up uh, by Christopher Ash. It's a short book that helps people uh, listen to sermons. I go through it, in fact, with all of our year seven students as they leave Sunday school and come into church. We go out of the service for every other week, and one of the weeks they hear the sermon and take notes. The other week we go out, we go through Christopher Rash's book, and we examine the understanding of the sermon. And the first lesson I always teach is the most important thing in listening to sermons is our attitude that we come to church with. If we come to church thinking this is going to be rubbish, it probably will be. But if we come eager to hear, as God's word is opened and read, God will speak to his people. May God give all the people who are part of this church a hunger, the kind that we see here. Well, it's one thing to turn your ears towards God's word, but I heard somewhere earlier today that if we are hearers only, we are foolish, aren't we? In James, we read of the man who looks in the mirror and sees something wrong and then walks away without doing anything about it as being a fool. And the same applies here. We don't just have a hunger for God's word to listen to it, but we also, secondly, have a right response to God's word. And we see a number of responses to the reading of God's word in verses 4 to 8. First of all, we see in verse 4 the response of reverence in verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, notice how Ezra, the one who is opening up the book, is standing on a high wooden platform. Uh, In one sense, this would be so that everyone can see Ezra, but it also shows the high position of the scripture in the presence of the people. And one of the defining features of an evangelical church, one of the things that changed during the Reformation, was that the pulpit is a primary position in the front of the congregation. Uh, Here it is at the front of our church, and in one sense, it is true that we placed a pulpit here so that you can see, especially I'm very short, you can see me much better if I'm on a platform, but mainly the reason the pulpit is at the front of the church is so that we show that this is the priority of our church, the opening of God's word and hearing it preached. There's a symbolism here, isn't there, in showing the priority of God's word. There is a reverence for hearing God speak. And on the platform in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, one thing we don't have here was the 13 men who were probably there to give Ezra a break in the six hours in the reading of God's word. 
Again, it's the scriptures, not the man who is given the prominence, but the purpose of those men around him are probably so that they could take turns in reading God's word. And in verse 5, we read that Ezra opened up the book and notice the stance of the people in that verse. They all stood up. And again, that posture shows the reverence for the word of God uh, being read. So there's the response of reverence. We take this seriously. Uh, Secondly, there's the response of submissive worship. Uh, We see this in verse 6. I've got the wrong verse on the slide, but it's uh, verse 6. We see submissive uh, worship here. Uh, Ezra, we read, praises the Lord, uh, the great God, and all the people lift their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bow down and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. So Ezra praises the Lord. The people give their amen. And for those that that don't know, uh, amen means may it be so or we agree with what has been said. They are giving assent to what Ezra is saying. He's, He's opening the word. He's reading God's word. He's teaching it. And the people are saying, we agree with you, Ezra. Absolutely, Ezra. May it be so, Ezra. And they lifted their hands. The the lifting of the hands is basically a physical amen. In the Bible, the raising of hands is a bodily sign of submission to God in praise. A way of saying, here I am, Lord, in your service. Or I'm in agreement with and I delight in what we are saying or singing about you, Lord. That's what the the raising of the hands was about. It's a, a sign of submission, open hands before God. And then in addition to that, they use their bodies again in in another way by bowing down in worship with their faces to the ground. All of these things, uh, the amen, the the hand raising, the, the faces to the ground, are all signs of submission to God and what he's saying in his word. And as the Bible is opened, we need to be ready to respond with submission I hope you have not come here tonight to listen to Steve. No, you're not submitting to me. You're submitting to God's word as it is opened and read and taught. This is not a fairy story. This is not just some good advice that I feel like giving you today. This is the word of the great God, the great God that Ezra here in Nehemiah 8 is praising. And the final response we find in verses 7 and 8 is the response of deepening understanding. Deepening understanding. In verse 7, we see another list of names. Uh, These are Levites, and they were responsible for explaining what the word of God meant. Uh, What seemed to happen was that Ezra or someone else on the platform would read the Bible, and then the Levites among the people would explain what the reading meant. They might even translate it into the dialect of the people in the, in the area, and they would check that people understood. So Ezra would read the Bible, uh, he would teach about it, and then there'd be a little, little groups that'd be saying, do you understand what he's saying? Uh, let's talk about this point that he's making, and, and so on and so forth. And verse 8 said that they, they made it clear, which could mean literally they translated it, But it also meant they they gave the meaning. They gave the meaning of what the word said. 
And so we take from this that God's word needs to be read, it needs to be explained, and then talked about so that we understand it. And a right response to the word of God is to want to know what it means. And there are passages in our Bibles, aren't there, that we read them and we think, I want to understand this, Lord, but I really don't understand what this is saying. And so we seek out the meaning. We try and speak to other, uh, other brothers and sisters in Christ who can help us to understand. We read books and so on and so forth. And this is what good preaching does. It, it, it reads the Bible so we know where the sermon is coming from. It explains the meaning and it shows us how we apply it to our lives today. And may our preaching always be the case from this church. So when you come to open God's word, do you have a reverence for what is being said? Does it take a high position in your life day to day? Uh, Of course, one way we show this is by, by prioritizing the reading of it. Do you submit to what it says in worship? Can you say, Amen, and bow down to what God is saying here? And do you strive to understand what it means by listening to biblical preaching, by reading good books that aid understanding? I think the best way we apply this in our church is the home groups. The home groups, in the way I'm seeing it from this passage, are a little bit like those groups in the square discussing the word that's been read and enabling one another to understand We gather together, not in a big square together, but in our living rooms, in our homes. We talk about what has been said on Sunday, and we say, did you understand that? Uh, What do you think about this? How can we apply this to our lives? And then we pray about it together. So if you're not part of a home group, I, I encourage you, join one. It helps to deepen our understanding and apply the word of God to our lives. So there is a, a fresh hunger for God's word. There's a right response to it. And thirdly, there is a joyful celebration. In verse 9, we see that as the word of God has been read and explained, one of the responses of the people was that of mourning and weeping. So as the law had been read, no doubt people were convicted of their lack of obedience to it and their neglect of reading it. There is conviction of sin, and, and, and that's a good thing, that we, we open God's word, and as we're looking in the, in the mirror of God's word, we see that there is sin in our lives. Now, now, when was the last time that you wept as you read God's word, or heard preaching of God's word, because you were convicted of your sin? That's something that should happen to us, not all the time, of course, But there should be time, shouldn't there? Because we all still struggle with sin. But here we see the people were really impacted by the preaching. But now the time of reading had come to an end. And the time for weeping had come to an end as well. Because the day of this public reading was a holy day. It was the Sabbath and it was the Feast of Trumpets. And the hunger for the opening of the Word of God was actually a cause for celebration. And so in verse 9, Nehemiah, Ezra, and the other teachers told the people to stop weeping. Instead, in verse 10, they're to get the best food that they have and the best drink, and they're to share it with one another and have a great celebration because it's a feast day. 
Now, you may think it's strange to ask someone who is under conviction of sin here to stop weeping. But remember, this isn't just a one-hour church service that's going on here. This was, was, was a whole, whole day of the reading of God's Word, of which there were times when weeping was appropriate. But that's not to be the permanent state of God's people all the time. And we can see why this is in verse 10, where we read, Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the reading of the law, when God's word is read, it does at times make us weep. We realize we've offended a holy God and we deserve his judgment. We weep when we realize that we've responded to God's love by sinning rather than in obedience. We weep when we realize that the mess of our sin and that that it's made in the world around us. However, the gospel is good news because God deals with sin. So as the law is read, and remember, he's not just reading one part of it, he's reading the whole law. As they opened the law of Moses, they would have seen that there is atonement and restoration through the sacrifices God provides. And this knowledge of the forgiveness of sin and the hope for the future lifts us from despair and gives us the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord strengthens us to keep going and rejoicing in the gospel. I think the best way of explaining what was going on here is how we come to the Lord's table. When we come to the Lord's table and we see the bread and the cup, we see the sacrifice that's been made because of us. We sing, don't we? It was my sin that held him there. And it's right that we take that seriously and personally. My sin was part, part of what put Christ on the cross. And we, we confess our sin to God and as we remember why he needed to be sacrificed. And there's been times in communion, I'm sure, where all of us have wept at what our sin has done to the Son of God. But when we take the bread and we take the cup, we are also saying the price for that sin has been paid because God has loved me so much that he sent Jesus to die for that sin. And so we leave the Lord's table so often, don't we, rejoicing, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, where we look forward to the time when we won't be eating the bread and the cup in that way because we'll be with the Lord together forever. Our sorrow is turned to joy, isn't it? And that's what's going on here. It's a little bit like a communion service. So when we are feeling grief because of our sin, it's right that we spend time in that grief. But we don't stay there. Our minds go to Calvary where the price was paid and where we can rejoice in the strength of that sacrifice. And so in verse 12, the people went away to celebrate with great joy. Notice why they celebrated. Because they now understood the word that had been made known to them. They understood it. And brothers and sisters, when you read and understand God's word, when you understand the gospel, do you have that sense of joy because you understand what this means? Because let me tell you, when the Spirit has not opened our eyes, we can read the most clearest passages of the Scriptures and not get it at all. But the fact that we understand it is a cause for rejoicing. Because I once was blind, 
but now I see. Have you lost the wonder of the salvation that you have? Have you stopped being able from your heart to to be able to sing, blessed be that he's prepared a place for me? Have you stopped rejoicing when you read a passage of scripture because it's familiar to you rather than rejoicing about the fact that you understand it at all? In this revival here, people rejoiced because they again realized the meaning of the word of God. Brothers and sisters, let's not allow the gospel to grow cold in our hearts. Let's always be able to sing for joy and celebrate what God has done for us and that we can know it. So three aspects of this revival, a fresh hunger, a right response, a joyful celebration, and finally, an ongoing obedience, an ongoing obedience. So in verse 13, we come to the following day. And I love this, uh, this verse because they've got day one, six-hour church service, loads of preaching. Day two, they come back for more. <laughs> so the, the heads of the families, they want more of God's word. They, they haven't had enough on the day before. But the heads of the families come back. And why is it the heads of the families? No doubt, because they, as the heads of the families, want to hear more of God's word and teach it to their spouses and their children. Verse 13 is a brilliant example to husbands and fathers to give attention to the word of God in order that we share it with our families. Men, take note of what is going on here. So after the extensive teaching on day one, there is some intensive teaching on day two to these men. And notice again in verse 13 that phrase, they give attention to the words of the law. They are all ears again. And as they are having this Bible study with Ezra, in verses 14 and 15, they realize that they've not been keeping the Feast of Tabernacles properly. Now this feast is a celebration of how God brought Israel through the wilderness into the promised land uh, as they went along in tents. That's what tabernacle is. It's a big, big tent. And it celebrates that by going camping for a whole week. Now, some of you love camping. Some of you, uh, I know, hate camping. Uh, I'm one of those that do love camping. I would have loved the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, But they realized they uh, they weren't keeping this feast in the way the law prescribed. Now, I don't think they weren't keeping it, keeping it at all, because in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 4, we read that they celebrated it there. But what's most likely uh, going on is that they were missing out parts of the feast. Uh, most likely, uh, the camping requirements, because they're told here to go and get all of these branches to make their tents with. So this is probably a, a bunch of people that thought, well, I, just, I don't fancy the camp out. Now, it is different in the Middle East, I'm sure, because it wouldn't rain quite so much. But whatever they were doing, they weren't keeping the feast properly. And they realized their shortfall, and they sought to rectify it. And so in verse 16, we read that they went out, they got the stuff, they built the temporary shelters, and in verse 17, everyone lived in them. They celebrated the feast according to the word in the way God prescribed. And so at the end of verse 17, we read, From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, 
until until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. Now, the book of Joshua is many, many, many hundreds of years before the events of Nehemiah chapter 8. And it doesn't mean here that they'd not celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles at all since Joshua's day. But it was such a special time. It was, it was like uh, the writer saying here, it was, this was the best Feast of Tabernacles ever. This is the best Feast of Tabernacles since Joshua's day. That's the kind of thing he was saying. It's like uh, if we have a Christmas, that's just the best Christmas ever. You, you'd say, this was the best Christmas ever. I haven't had a Christmas like this since I was 12 years old. That kind of, that kind of thing. And part of that, I'm sure, is the reviving spirit at work among the people. And so the hunger for and the obedience to the word of God among the people did not just last on one Sabbath day. It was ongoing afterwards. Some came back the following day. Everybody kept the feast properly for the whole of that week. And notice in verse 18... Notice what that verse says. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. And the meaning here isn't that Ezra was having his quiet time every day. The meaning here is Ezra was reading it to everybody. People wanted to hear the word of God every day. Not just on a a Sabbath day, day after day. Now, this is very much like another revival in Scripture, that of Acts chapter 2, isn't it? Where we read that God was working among his people. And in Acts chapter 2, we read this earlier, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Same kind of things that's going on here. Every day. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You see? A hunger, an obedience to God's word, and it wasn't just a Sunday thing. It was the day-by-day walk of the Christian life. I don't know who you were thinking about at the beginning when I asked about someone that you'd really like to meet. Whoever that person is, I'm sure it would be great to meet them. But shouldn't we have such a more greater hunger to hear from the God of the universe, our Heavenly Father, our Savior? And wonderfully, we don't have to sit around waiting for Him to call us, He's given us His Word. And all we have to do is bring out the book. And so we should respond to that access in the way that we're called to here. Hungering for God's word, straining to hear and understand it, and responding to it aright. And I pray that every one of us would have that hunger. A hunger to be filled by Jesus, the bread of life, through his word. And our final song that we're going to sing together as we respond to this word is a prayer for this kind of reviving work to go on in our generation. We're going to stand and sing together a song that we've sung a few times through this book of Nehemiah because it fits with the the theme of this restoration. 
Uh, we're going to stand and sing, Restore, O Lord. Let's stand together as we sing. Just before we close, I do have some of those uh, little booklets. If anyone wants them, just come and grab one for me as you go out the door. Uh, just if you find that helpful to listen to sermons, they're very, you're very welcome to them. But let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, it is our prayer that we've, as we've been singing, that you would restore us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. And with that in mind, Lord, we pray that you would give us a hunger that would be filled only as we come to you, as we bring out the book and hear you speak to us. And as we read your word, we pray that we would become more and more like Jesus, the word of God the Father and in whose name we pray. Amen.